0: The code sets up high standards of performance
1: for motion picture producers. It states the considerations which good taste and community value make necessary in this universal form of entertainment. Okay, so that recording that we just listened to was a 1930 recording of one of the creators of the motion picture production code, explaining like why the code was important in regulating film content. So. The Motion Picture Production Code, or it was also known as the Hays Code, was the set of rules that American films had to follow in order to be played in theaters. And one of these rules was no open depictions of queerness or homosexuality, or as it was called at the time of quote-unquote, sex perversion. So because of this, a lot of filmmakers started to create and rely on a set of visual, vocal, and narrative cues to signal that a character was queer in some way without actually overtly stating it. And that's why so many older hollywood movies are like super campy and really gay despite not actually being like overly gay so even though the haze code ended in like kind of the late 1960s it's had a pretty long lasting effect on how filmmakers and audiences have been trained to create and see queerness within film i'm Allie, and i started this podcast queer coded as my final project grad school as a way of seeing the impact of historical queer subtext on contemporary hollywood films So each section of this podcast focuses on potential queer subtext or later films text in two films from one genre. So on this episode of Queer Coded, we are continuing our discussion of the monster movie, and our co-host is still Austin Carr. That's you.
0: Oh, hi, I'm Austin. I'm a monster movie muncher.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So this episode is on queer coded monster movies and we're talking about the 2017 film shape of water and the 1935 film the bride of frankenstein so a brief summary of the shape of water and my air conditioner is making a really weird sound but i'm not going to turn it off so sorry anyway brief summary Um, The Shape of Water was released in 2017. It was directed by Guillermo del Toro and it was written by Guillermo del Toro and Vanessa Taylor. So there's a lot going on in this movie and I'm going to just, I'm just going to hit the highlights because so many things happen and I don't really feel like getting into them all. So just like (laughs) watch the movie. So basically this movie is about a woman named Eliza who works as a cleaner at this like very secretive government facility in Baltimore in 1962. Eliza can't speak and she communicates through sign language. She's friends with her neighbor who is this like older gay man artist. And her co-worker, Zelda. So at the secret government facility, the military brings in this like amphibian fishman. He doesn't have a name in the story, so we're just gonna call him Fishman. And the amphibian fishman is from South America, and they bring him in, and he's like in chains and everything, and the military is doing all of these like horrible, painful, and like inhumane experiments on him. And the man who brings in the fishman is like the main villain of the movie. He's this like very disciplined, very intense person who is somehow affiliated with the military. I don't know what, exactly what his like position or rank is, but he's like he's our main villain. So Eliza and the Fish Man meet each other when she's like cleaning up blood um because again they're like torturing the fishman. So Eliza and the fishman meet each other and they both don't use kind of traditional forms of communication. So Eliza speaks with sign language and the fishman speaks like like with fish sounds. So they find ways to communicate with each other and they bond and they play music together and it's like really cute and then they fall in love. And then Eliza finds out that the military plans to do a a vivisection? Vivisection? I don't know how to pronounce that word. And I Googled that. And so apparently it's like when as like a surgeon you like dissect something while it's still alive and like you like take it apart and look at all the organs and stuff and like look at how it works and it's like really messed up and um again like it's torture. So Eliza's like, you know, this can't happen and she convinces her two friends to help her save the fish man and they do, surprisingly. For the second half of the movie, we've got like the villain trying to hunt the fishman down. Um, and then near the end, he's like eventually killed by the fishman, and like a ton of things happen. There's a lot of cool symbolism and side characters, and there's like this whole subplot with like a Russian spy, but it's too much to get into. <laughs> so again, just like watch watch the movie, it's good. But anyway, end of the movie, Eliza and the Fishman escape the government agents and they end up like floating together in this body of water i don't know exactly what kind of body of water it is and they're like embracing each other and it's this really cool beautiful shot and then the ending is like kind of ambiguous as to what happens next and then the movie ends and it's really good and you should watch it
0: have you always been alone
1: Did you ever have someone? Do you know what happened to you? Do you? Because I don't. I don't know what happened to me. I I don't know. I look in the mirror and the only thing that I recognize are these
0: eyes. And this old man's face. Sometimes I think I was either born too early or too late for my life. Maybe we're both just relics.
1: Okay, something that I that I wanted to talk about with Shape of Water and we can refer to Bride of Frankenstein is like I just feel like the just like the deep loneliness of both of these movies is oh. so like intense and beautiful and sad and like I don't maybe it's just because it's like a pandemic right now. I
0: was yeah I was gonna say when I rewatched this movie there were like several parts that I almost cried and I think mm-hmm. it was just like I think it was just like part of the pandemic like that feeling it's like of, the
1: like, isolation total
0: loneliness
1: yes
0: really gets to you the line where Richard Jenkins character who is like this closeted gay man in the fifties says he's talking to the he's oh that's the, the scene man. i'm gonna
1: clip for this um podcast. oh my god it's beautiful he so talks good. to the
0: fish man and he's just like are you the last of your kind too <gasps> mm-hmm. that hit me so hard of just like yeah aging alone to the point where like like you don't feel like you're changing but you feel like everything is changing around you yes. to the point where like you just have a realization that like Oh, I like my even my body has changed, and the only thing I recognize about myself is my
1: eyes. Yeah, is
0: so devastating to me. Yeah. Watching it. and I was like, oh. especially
1: <laughs> like in the pandemic when like it feels like we've all just kind of like literally lost a year of life, and it's just like, yeah. what is hap like I yeah, but just yeah the the loneliness and which I do think speaks to a potential. I I like I think that we haven't really talked about this, but a lot of people talk about how like um, the queer spectator, I think Harry Benshoff talks about this in the Monsters in the Closet book, but it could be someone else. I'll cite it at the end. Anyway, um, he talks about how queer coding and specifically horror and monster movies, the reason this podcast isn't just about horror is because there are already like a million podcasts about queer horror because it's so popular. Because there's just something about like and by that, that,
0: we're talking about Matt Walsh's podcast, <laughs> <Javiro's> podcast, <laughs> queer horror. <laughs> um. <laughs> Where they comment on Harry Styles' latest <laughs> movie.
1: <laughs> but there's just like, um, yeah, like, so queer spectators a lot of times are more inclined to, they're more likely to be drawn to something like a monster movie or a horror movie because there's this feeling of loneliness and otherhood and, or other otherhood otherness um that like it just it fits really well and i think especially when you get like like the interactions between the fish man and like richard jenkins character where he like directly kind of makes that parallel between like being like um perceived as monstrous and also just being like i don't belong here because like I'm an aging gay man and I don't fit in this world because, like, you know, it's not ancient Greece (laughs) and everyone isn't – you know what I mean? But it's also not, like, the 21st -hmm. century. Like, I just genuinely, like – so that, like, feeling of, like, I just don't fit here and I don't work in this society and world is something that appeals to the the queer spectator position.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's even, like, something that I didn't really notice – At the time, like on my first watch, but I noticed the second time is also. I mean, films love, directors love to do this, but they love to talk about, like, a medium dying as, like, a symbol for yes something being lost and times moving forward. So, like, with Richard Jenkins' character, I have no idea what his name is in that movie. I want to say it's, um, like, Giles
1: or something weird. Giles?
0: I think it's the Giles.
1: Name? I'm Googling it really? I'm, it's either Giles or Giles. I don't know how to pronounce it.
0: Giles is really, is way too close to jowls jowls? <laughs> for me. Let's see
1: uh yeah it's g-i-l-e-s wow how would you pronounce um, that
0: um uh, fuck were oh we're
1: directors love to do the medium thing which oh, you're directors, right they do yes, it's very directors deep directors
0: love to use like um uh, the death of a medium as like yes. a symbol for the like, death of radio the death of on, the silent film the death like, of art how humanity is changing so they love to do that thing but it is a thing that's sort of referenced a couple times in this in this movie, which I think is kind of fun, um, and sad. But like how they're like, oh, well, you're like an old timey illustrator, and people want pictures now. They, like want, photographs. Just, they yeah. want photographs. They want photographs, and it really works well not for that character specifically because he, like he, like you said, like he, the feeling of like loneliness of being like.
1: I'm not I, valuable in this society. My
0: existence in this timeline is kind of just like a full mistake because there's no life I could even have to lead. Yeah. Um, Which is so sad.
1: You clean that lab, you get out. The thing we keep in there is an affront. Do you know what an affront is, Zelda?
0: Something offensive. That's right. And I should know I dragged it filthy thing out of the river muck in south america all the way here and along the way we didn't get to like each other much now you may think that thing looks human stands on two legs right but we're created in the lord's image you don't think that's what the lord looks like do you i wouldn't know sir what the Lord looks like. Well, human Zelda, he looks like a human, like me. Or even you. Maybe a little more like me, I guess.
1: (laughs) So I don't know as much about the history of Bride of Frankenstein because I couldn't find, I found some of my old research, but not all of it. Um, I do know that Bride of Frankenstein did influence Guillermo del Toro. Like so, he has in his um.
0: Well, I mean, the aesthetic for sure. The like, aesthetic.
1: Oh, when I was watching Shape of Water, movie are
0: so cool.
1: Yeah, and when I was watching Shape of Water, I was just like, "Wow!" The color scheme with the green and everything. Yeah. Is very similar to the whole like the gothic lighting, lighting and yeah, and Bride of Frankenstein. Like, I can definitely see the influence. And Guillermo del Toro has so there was this museum exhibit. A couple of years ago that was on tour called at home with monsters that was inspired by like the monster collection Guillermo del Toro has in his literal house Oh, and yeah, it's I've seen pictures so you've seen pictures mm-hmm. it's so terrifying but I'm like pretty sure he has Frankenstein stuff but I think he also has a replica of the bride as well with the like streak in her hair and stuff have
0: you ever seen pan's labyrinth
1: no, but everyone it's has told really me I need good. to watch it.
0: Yeah, it's really good. It's but not it's, it's very like, different in that like it's it's not like a m- monster movie, like it's not like Shape of Water at all. Right. Um but it's like it's a really all of his movies do like allegory in a very cool way.
1: He also does really cool stuff with like making like things that are like classically um I think I would use the word grotesque. You know what I mean? Like weirdly beautiful. And it's like very uncomfortable, but really cool.
0: He's like the definition of like a gothic filmmaker. And he's not doing creepy things to scare you. He's doing creepy things because he's like, this is like beautiful to me. And it's so weird to watch somebody who like has that point of view because so few people do have that point of view and it's I don't know it's really cool I really I he's like probably one of my favorite directors just because I'm like he has such a distinct style but he's also yeah. able to like use it for so many different types of stories like Shape of Water is so genuinely like delightful to watch like oh, it it's feel, just it a joy so to watch <laughs> it feels like a classic romance and you're just like oh this mm-hmm. is so sweet but then you watch pan's labyrinth and it's like a gritty war drama mixed with yeah. like fantastical like fairy tale elements like it's, it's just
1: and didn't he do like hellboy too i feel like he, he did, did
0: hellboy he also did um <laughs> that fucking movie with jessica chastain and Mio wasikowski what is it
1: was it a oh, horror movie, movie?
0: Oh, Crimson Peak, oh, I which know is also one. like full Edgar Allan Poe, like right, like that one's
1: more like con- classic horror, like yeah, it's
0: um, it's, but it's also like a it's completely different than Pan's Labyrinth. That's completely different than Shape of Water, right? Yeah, it's not like the best one. I think just because that one, the themes are like sort of less memorable because it, it just is like scary mansion, and you're like, yeah, we've seen this, yeah um I but think... it's cool like the he he also i mean we're probably getting not gonna get into this later but he's so good at using horror to talk about like class yes and like uh, like oppression and class and like yeah wh- like the, the stuff he does in crimson peak with like women and what women were allowed to do in victorian times and like yeah that kind of shit was really like using
1: horror to tell stories about an underclass, whether that is like in terms of like gender or money or race or ethnicity or nationality, like he does a really good job with that. And it's really cool.
0: And it's not, it doesn't feel preachy in the way that a lot of horror movies do when they do that, where it's like,
1: they're the mon, like
0: (laughs) who's the real monster. Yeah. (laughs) And they are taking like, it's just like, yeah, obviously like we get it. But with Guillermo del Toro, it just feels a lot more nuanced than that. Like Crimson Peak, you could watch it and completely not be, like, thinking about, like, the gender dynamics and the class dynamics. And it would still just be a good movie, you know?
1: Well, yeah, and that's what I like about Shape of Water. So I have heard the criticism of Shape of Water that it's not subtle enough. And one of my – someone I knew in college, she was like, oh, yeah, like, I feel like it's just, like, you know, like – too simplistic and the bad guy is so obviously evil whereas in shape of water what i think one of the things it does the best I, is yeah, i disagree I,
0: with that
1: yeah i love the is the actor's name michael shannon i think it is um yeah
0: he's incredible he's
1: fucking fantastic like i think it's such a good villain because he's kind of like a like Claude Frollo hunchback of Notre Dame villain a little Mm -hmm. bit but for like the 50s slash 60s but at the same time like kind of similar to like (laughs) Claude Frollo like you totally get why he does what he does you understand his motivations you understand that like he really wants to be a good person and he gets that monologue about being a good man and you see him like struggling so much to like be his idea of a good man and I think that's a really cool way because like he is like monstrous and the things he does are awful but at the same time he's like a human and you understand him and I think that's really cool to do with a villain
0: and you also like I think with a lot of villains it's just like cookie cutter like this is a villain, and they seem to like be aware that they're evil. <laughs> Whereas, oh yeah, but
1: he thinks he's a he thinks he's the hero genuinely. He
0: thinks he's the hero, and you can also understand why he thinks that, which yes. I think is like yes, a, you get it's why. Like very competent, smart filmmaking to be like oh yeah, obviously like this is a person that could exist because they clearly think that they're a good person. When like in movies, that isn't usually the case with a lot of villains. It's pretty obviously like. Oh, they know they're like doing bad things. Especially but that's not in how people like, work kind in of monster life.
1: movies and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, I mean, isn't he does that, that in like... all
0: of his movies, like *Crimson Peak*. The you for a lot of the movie, you're not even really sure who the villain is, and then when you mm-hmm. figure out who the villain is, you still like feel bad for them, you know? Yeah. And um, what's the other one that I always? Talk? Oh, *Pan's Labyrinth*. The again, like the villain is like pure evil, but you're also like, oh, he. Thinks that he's completely morally justified in everything that he's doing because it's during a war and he's like yeah. a general.
1: Yeah. Well, isn't that, um, is it, I don't know, <laughs> I'm not familiar with like theater or whatever because I was too scared of going on stage always. But isn't that like a rule in like acting or script writing or something? Like, um, everyone has to think they're the hero of, their, of the story or something like that? Isn't that like a, yeah, theater well, mantra the f- so thing? the phrase
0: that you learn in acting class is never judge the character so oh, okay you a lot of times they will like stop you when you're like acting in acting class and stuff because they'll see you doing that thing that like a lot of movies do where you're just like projecting like all this judgment onto the character yeah. and making them like e- like evil in like a campy way or just like you like it's that thing where you're like looking off into the distance and you're alone and you're like snickering <laughs> to yourself. And it's like, okay, well, nobody would do this in like real life. Like dramatic villain monologue. Because yeah. nobody, in their, yeah, like, like nobody in real life thinks that they're the villain in their own story unless they like really hate themselves, in which case right. they're probably not like this big, evil, powerful villain. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the phrase that people usually use is like, like you're judging the character. And that's basically like a way of saying you need to figure out a way to justify what the character is doing. Like, why do they think that what they're doing is correct? Because obviously that they think that there's a reason for what they're doing unless they're just, like, the Joker.
1: And like a sociopath. Yeah. Like... yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's a completely like you have to, like, different kind figure of villain. <laughs> out,
0: you have to figure out how this character thinks that they're doing the right thing and then, like, use that motivation moving forward, which sometimes is really hard to do.
1: All that to say... I think that the villain character in Shape of Water is like really well done in a way that is unusual to see in a monster movie, but also just in any movie to see a villain that's so nuanced. Um, But I mean,
0: I will say I will say upon rewatching, there were definitely lines that I thought were I mean, here's my criticism of Shape of Water is that I think that certain things certain nuances get lost in translation since Guillermo del Toro like. Like, I think there's a really big difference when you watch his movies that are in Spanish and you watch his movies that have been, like, translated into English. Oh, really? Just in that it's the the English versions feel much more, like, on the nose. Um, huh. So there were a couple lines in Shape of Water that I didn't notice the first time watching, but I did pick up the second time where he would be like, Why am I asking you the Piss cleaners, and it's like I okay. I don't think in real life a person like this would like <laughs> would outright say cult. that. Yeah, like I don't. I don't think I get. Or like, like it there's still a works line in the movie because you're like he's a dick and he's frustrated. But there's a couple yeah. lines where it's like I'm doing this because I hate you. When <laughs> it's like <okay>. yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> but
1: for the most part, you kind of get it. Like you get that he's he's not full cartoon but yeah there are yeah a couple they definitely moments.
0: there's a couple lines that i'm like and that's why i also think i'm like i'm wondering if this just was like a thing that was like when the language changed the subtlety was, was lost yeah some of the subtlety and nuance was lost because i think yeah. that would make sense but i think yeah. that the movie overall and the story overall does a lot of work to like justifying how he thinks that he's a good person like you see so much of his like relationship with his co-workers you see so much of his relationship with his you family get to and, like, see him at home living yeah. this American life that he thinks he's supposed to live and you also understand like you understand why given what the people above him are telling him that he thinks that he's like doing the right thing like he thinks yeah. it's okay for America to brutalize other people in other countries and like Fully, Like, I mean, the whole arc about South America is they just, like, stole his thing from right, South America. Right, it's a very
1: colonialist narrative going and on here. And they think here, that they're yeah. fully
0: justified because they're like, well, we're, like, Americans and we have to, like, we have to be strong. Like, you fully understand why right. he thinks that what he's doing is good. It's yeah. It's not, like, he's just like, I'm the mean boy here to be mean.
1: <laughs> it just makes the end of the movie a lot more emotional and the whole movie itself when you kind of, like, understand what the villain is doing and why he's doing it and why he wants what he wants
0: it's it's interesting too when you put when you add in the context of like guillermo del torre he's not just making a 1930s monster movie and subverting it he's making a 1950s 60s movie and subverting it which is cool too because it's like he's he's already like He's commenting not just on monster movies, but he's also commenting on the deconstruction of the monsters movies. And how like at this point in time when the movie is set, the monster movie was already kind of dying.
1: Yeah, it was.
0: Which is so like such a cool like meta layer to add to that movie of like, this isn't just like a subversion of a monster movie. This is like set in a time period where monster movies were no longer like as like, loved and powerful as they used to be
1: yeah and it's kind of like a like really cool nostalgic tribute but at the same time like we've talked i know we talked in the teen sex comedy episode about like the relationship between like a nostalgic um ode to a genre and like how you relate to the more problematic elements of that genre so we talked about that with like how super bad is like nostalgic for these old teen sex comedies um but at the same time is like kind of like i like there's like just it's a very fine line you have to walk when you're paying tribute to a genre that has baggage and i think that what del toro does is like he doesn't just deconstruct to be edgy or to deconstruct like he's deconstructing and being nostalgic and he's walking that fine line in a really cool way where it feels like he's genuinely creating like something new like a new kind of movie where the people who normally would be villainous are the heroes and the people who normally would be the heroes are the villains and i think it's like and and, like you know what i mean like i can't remember what video essay it was where they were talking about how like all the characters that normally would be seen as villains like you know the effeminate gay man um people of color and the woman who is different from everyone else because she like can't speak or something like normally they're yeah. like creepy side characters and you know like Dr. Doctor Pretorius and Richard Jenkins as characters like one is a campy evil villain and one is like a very empathetic um, character.
0: Yeah I mean I also when I was watching it I like I told Peter I was like it's such a cool Framing to like choose to do a monster movie mm-hmm. and have the main characters be the people who would be like in the background shots of your monster movie. Yes. Like that's, it's not just like subverting the trope of like, we're going to tell it from like the point of view of a woman who likes being kidnapped by monsters. Like it's not, <laughs> that's cool enough. In that itself, is cool. But yeah. the fact that like the leads are all like people who would be like, lucky to be extras in a monster who would movie. be
1: considered unimportant yeah
0: yeah just like fully insignificant like to frame it from their perspective is so cool is
1: and you get a completely different movie because like again like with the whole idea of like an underclass like i was thinking after watching bride of frankenstein then shape of water like in bride of frankenstein it's all about the brilliant scientific minds of these smart men and it's not about, you know, the sidekick who has to go get the brain. And it's not about the wife or the woman, the, like, the wife's, like, assistant, handmaid, whatever she is. You know what right, I mean? yeah. Whereas in this, it's about the people cleaning the facility. And it's about the people that, like, yeah, like you were saying, like, normally the camera wouldn't even hesitate to, like, move right past. And this time we're actually looking at them and seeing what the world looks like through their eyes which makes it a completely different kind of movie which is just like so cool
0: and it also like doesn't feel undeserved in any way Right? like you, you know what i mean like the framing totally works of being like yeah if they're the people that are cleaning this this facility of course they're gonna know fucking everything that happens. yeah and they probably have really know-
1: interesting stories to tell
0: yeah, they have such interesting stories to tell. Like they have firsthand knowledge of every single thing that's happening. They're literally like, like cleaning up the bloody messes. Yeah, the, the, bloody messages the, of the abuse fingers. that's happening.
1: Yeah, like
0: it's it feels completely deserved. Like it doesn't feel at all shoehorned in. Of like, wouldn't it be like cool and like subversive if instead we did it from like the cleaning crew's perspective like it totally makes sense within the story and also like it makes sense emotionally because you're like cool we get to see a new kind of story that we've never really seen before
1: right and like a new kind of monster movie where a lot of monster movies are playing with the idea of you know like who is the monster really though but like this movie obviously yeah like at that point
0: this is like that's a pretty easy observation yeah that's like, a pretty easy thing to do in movies because it's like yeah yeah we know like
1: <laughs> we know monsters don't always look like monsters and sometimes who you think is the hero is the monster but this movie i think We've i think by changing e. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think by changing the perspective of who who tells the story i think we get i think that's like um like um kind of like riffing off of that theme in an interesting way and also what I noticed this time around when I was watching this movie was all the scenes with TVs and movies, which is something else directors love to do is like put oh like God, yeah. authors love to do this. Well, they'll have a character reading in the book. And it's like, oh, how she, you know, what's the what did my English teacher or professor tell me? Like, oh, anytime there is a um a scene where a character is reading a book within a book that's how the author is teaching you to read their book. Like that relationship between yeah, the piece of that's art. Cool. Yeah. So this one, there's so many TVs and so much like old Hollywood style and symbolism and all of that. And but I But even kept-
0: then like there's a lot of intentional like sort of what we were talking about at about at the beginning of like the use of the death of a media of a medium as a metaphor. There's such a juxtaposition between, The movie theater is
1: going out of business.
0: The movie theater is going out of business. The Richard Jenkins... And, um, what is her name? Eliza. I only know the actress's name. Eliza? Yeah. Um, yeah. uh, Richard Jenkins and Eliza have, like, this really cool relationship where they're connecting over, like, old movie musicals. Mm -hmm. And he's like, this is a classic. She blah, 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 blah. (laughs) Um, Although, even that being said, I think that there's a lot of like that's it's presented as something that's very sad to them of like oh they are part of an older time that's dying and like that whole thing but at the same time i think it's not necessarily saying like things changing needs to be a bad thing cuz there is no. even the part where he um he's putting on the part about like the the civil rights movement that was happening at the time and he's like turn that off I don't need to see that right now and then they go back to their like old-timey movie musical which is like vapid and fun but like completely empty you know yeah
1: well I think that there's like a lot of like so what I think is interesting is yeah I don't think that this movie kind of like going back again to the whole nostalgia thing like I don't think that this movie is like Uncritically Things nostalgic. Things better
0: back then. Yeah, yeah.
1: Like when he tells her to change the channel away from the civil rights protest, like he's purposely looking away from this, and it he's does
0: happy to look away. Yeah,
1: yeah, and it does kind of like problematize that, and it also does problematize the fact that like, like I don't know. This feels very meta, but like the fact that like they love these old movies and shows that don't include gay men or you know women who have like disabilities or like people of color you know what i mean and like that's what i feel like are
0: obsessed with this fantasy that would never be available to them
1: and that i feel like feeds back into the whole loneliness of the film because like okay the scene where the monster the monster the fish man like breaks into the movie theater and is watching the like bible movie and like it's reflected on the fish man's face and it's just like so beautiful i just i think that there's this really interesting which again makes me think of like queer spectatorship stuff this like obsession with this history and tradition that doesn't really include you and this like deep loneliness and desire to like see yourself in it and like Mm -hmm. trying to fit like the part where she reenacts like an old hollywood dance number with the fish man and it's like just this really cool like fantastic oh. kind of scene and it's beautiful but it's also again like so sad because it is imaginary and it doesn't exist and it,
0: yeah like it. it's there was never a time in history exactly. where something like, like that ever could have happened and arguably like it still doesn't really happen like yeah she's, the actress doesn't have a disability like you know like yeah. it's still we're still like not really on the level that we need to be when it comes to like letting people see themselves represented in media.
1: Right. And so I thought that that was just a really cool way to, like, expand that, like, loneliness and, like, to, again, like, make a movie for the type of people who like horror and monster movies but never really get to see themselves in it. And I thought that that was really cool. Um,
0: Yeah, I think that... A thing that I really appreciate about Shape of Water is that, like, it's... I think it it does the thing that La La Land kind of failed to do which is like referencing an older time that people like love the aesthetic of while still being critical of it yes um which I think uh, it's really hard to walk that line because if you, it it, it doesn't so want to come across as a parody. It's so easy to go full La
1: La Land and just go yeah. all sparkles and sunshine, or to go. Full and there's parody.
0: a, I'm sure there's a really easy version of this movie to be made that it could have all been sparkles and sunshine, and yeah. could have just been like a reference to old monster movies with shot with the aesthetic of like you know like a 1950s creature feature, and it would have yeah. been it would have been a really fun movie to watch, it but it fine. wouldn't have been yeah. as meaningful, you know?
1: And I think that that's where someone like Del Toro, like we talked earlier about how he like, I think that what he does that's so cool. And he talked about this in interviews, like how he wanted the love story between Eliza and the Fishman to not be about like tolerating each other's differences or teaching each other to be the same, but he wanted it to be genuinely like we are different and that is what makes this cool. Like I think that he does a lot with, like, tension, like, again, like, grotesque beauty, so I think that he is very qualified to handle something like, okay, let's handle nostalgia for the 50s and 60s, this incredibly, like, racist, homophobic time period that was really difficult for a lot of people, and let's tell their stories in a way that, like, allows it to have some beauty while still, like, Still pointing yeah. out the problems and still being critical, he's, like he's very yeah. good with tension, and I think he's that's so really cool
0: good. That. Yeah, he's he's like a master of like creating tension and letting it be released a little bit for like moments but not of levity fully. and beauty, but not yeah. fully. Like you still like, the end whole... the movie kind of heavy. Yeah, I mean, like there's, it's like he does such a good job of like blending melancholy with like humor and like beauty like you were saying.
1: Yeah. It's just I I really like this movie a lot. <laughs> I
0: it's it's honestly it's I Peter was making fun of me cuz I was so excited to watch this movie again. <laughs> but I the first time I watched it, it's like it's one of those movies that like the setup makes me like audibly gasp multiple times just cuz it's so like the texture in his movies is yes. fucking crazy to me. Like the the colors are beautiful. Um, They're the beautiful, he, but also like
1: the green is a little bit like dingy, but it's also beautiful. Which again, so it's like it's like unsettling but cool.
0: Every scene just feels so like. Purposeful and intentional, and like loved in a way that I just think is like it's just like the essence of like really, it's someone who like l- genuinely loves filmmaking. Yeah, someone who just loves movie.
1: making movies and loves movies, which is like just, there's yeah. there's
0: no aspect of the setting that is a throwaway. Like no. the choice to set it in Baltimore is very intentional. The choice so intentional. to have the movie basically take place only at night. Is not just oh, like a yeah. stylistic choice. Like it's like it, it's such a big part of the story. It's such a big part of like the ambiance and the aesthetic. It's such a big part of the plot. Yeah, the choice to make her like be living above a movie theater. The choice, oh, yeah. the choice to be like having her have her like little masturbation routine at the beginning. It's not just like quirky for the sake of quirky. Like mm-hmm. it's like he fully like imagined this world, and it's something that he does with all of his movies. Like he fully imagines every single world, and they're all distinct. And I think that's really cool.
1: Yeah. Okay, I want to go back really quick to the, um, when we were talking earlier, when we were talking earlier about, like, telling a story about a very difficult and oppressive time period while still remaining critical, and when you talked about, like, Richard Jenkins' character changing the channel away from the Civil Rights Rally to, I think at one point they're watching one of those, like, kind of racist Shirley Temple, like- interactions between like a black man and shirley temple you know what i mean one of those that's kind of like uh um anyway so they change the channel and go back to older tv and there is like this question throughout the film of like the future like they keep saying you know like the kids of um michael shannon's character ask him like are we gonna have jetpacks and it's like green is the color of the future mm-hmm. and, and that's part of the villains i think fear is like am I going to be part of the future? Am I going to get to run the future like oh, people like me have run the past? So I think that that... I like, mean,
0: it's the... I mean, not to get too political on this thing, but and this, <laughs> not to get too political on this podcast about a queer about, horror <laughs> movie. <yeah. laughs> <laughs> but like that is that is the conservative anxiety of just like, yes. I'm, I'm a white man. I'm on top of society. Every year things get more like people are waking up more and more to things being shitty and things being not equal and like the possibility that we could change that what does the future look like for people for like me,
1: me if i yeah. lose my place and i think that That's like, like when the
0: conservative fear yeah this is the fucking thing i love about guillermo del toro is that like everybody has an arc like every supporting character has a realization of their own Like, from the villains to the leads to, like, the minor characters in a way that, like, not a lot of people do, like, ensemble movies like that. And this isn't even really an ensemble movie because, like, there is a clear, like, lead. Yeah. Um, And and I will say, we've
1: talked about this before, but I will say I did, I mean, not on this podcast, but I did wish that, like, um, the... Zelda what is the I'm blanking yeah. on the actress's name? Um
0: Octavia Spencer.
1: Yeah. I wish she got a little bit more she's the only character that I feel like is kind of shoehorned into a little bit of a stereotype. And I, I wish totally she got more. Agree.
0: Like I, screen
1: time, more story.
0: Everyone else had pretty like the gay guy has a very specific arc of like being gay in the 60s. So it's weird that Zelda doesn't have a specific arc of like being a black woman in the 60s.
1: Well, and I wonder if that was, I actually don't know who, cause I think that's a really good point to make that like, it feels like um, Richard Jenkins arc is a lot about, yeah, like it, the experience of what it would be like to be like an aging gay man in the 60s. And um, the same with like Eliza's character and stuff, but yeah, it doesn't feel like there's that much specific to Zelda's character that like, is something that like is about the experience of being specifically a black woman in this time period in this city and i wonder if that's like like i don't know who wrote the screenplay but like i don't know
0: particularly like not just any city but baltimore
1: baltimore right like the racial politics of a city like baltimore and like there are hints again of like race and like also with the With the fish man being from um, South America, there's hints of, like, colonialism and stuff like that. But I think that, like, there could have been a little, like, there could have been a lot more, I think. And I think it could have made it stronger. Um, Yeah. And I think that there's, like, a hint of the kind of, like, the, like, when she says her middle name is Delilah. And there's that kind of, like, weird, like, the way he over-sexualizes both Zelda and Eliza. I don't know. I think mm-hmm. that they are like Also the line that. where he's
0: like, your people like love the Bible. Or yeah. Or like that weird thing. Like that was kind of like the only comment he really overtly made about her race, which was surprising in a movie that takes place in the 50s slash 60s. Yeah. In <laughs> Couldn't Baltimore. Couldn't tell you which
1: one. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't tell you 50s or 60s. But yeah, I wonder like, yeah, were the people writing it as familiar with the experiences of like black women in Baltimore in the 50s slash 60s?
0: or yeah, yeah so
1: I, I so i wonder like is that a part of it too is like whoever was writing it maybe was not as familiar with what that's like i don't know i i don't know who i think who wrote that it.
0: regardless of the reasoning behind it i think it's a fair point to be like it seems like a weird blind spot
1: for this movie that to have there
0: isn't as much specific and like thoughtful racial commentary as this movie like should have Yeah. if they're going to have like like a a black character playing like a very big part in the story and then it just like isn't really touched on at all it just seems weird
1: yeah i think that there was like room for that
0: because she still does have an arc like she has a whole arc with her husband she has a whole arc about like she's deciding whether or not to help eliza yeah yeah
1: and like, she's she has like, a whole
0: thing of like, she has a whole tragic backstory with her own family and like yeah. her mom and like naming her Delilah, such an interesting choice. There was yeah. still, there was, the character still had like interesting things to do that I was appreciative of. Right. But she, it didn't seem at all connected to the racial dynamic of the time, which yeah. was strange.
1: Which is, I think, yeah, like you were saying, kind of a little bit of a blind spot. Also, I finally yeah, it looked it up. Like it. It happens in 1962.
0: Okay, thank God. I think it was... It <laughs> makes more sense that it's the 60s because, like, like technology-wise and Cold War-wise, Yeah. But.
1: Yeah, no, I think... I don't know. Do you have anything else you want to say about Shape of Water or Bride of Frankenstein or both?
0: I just, like... <laughs> I love Shape of Water. I think mm-hmm. watching it a second time... The first time I watched it, I was like, this is a perfect movie. I cried. Which is stupid. Um, I,
1: I know, no movie is perfect.
0: Because that's not a thing, yeah. And, yeah. like, I, there's, the second time I watched it, I think I came in with the context of, like, knowing some of the criticisms of the film. Yeah. Um, which, like, the whole character of Octavia Spencer and, like, what she's given to work with and how she's treated is definitely, like, probably the biggest criticism that i Because she seen. is
1: overlooked by the film, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and I think, on my second rewatch, I totally think that's fair. Yeah. Um, but I think that, like, overall... It's just, and I also think that, like, overall, the movie could be a little bit tighter. There's just, like, some pacing things. Yeah, so, but, but, like, besides those things, I just think that, like, fuck, I love this movie. I think it's, it does, it's such an interesting exploration of, like, a time period. It's such an interesting exploration of, like, a genre. It's such an interesting exploration of, like character and like what Mm it what it means to relate to other people I think that there were a lot of things that I noticed the first time I saw the movie just about like how it specifically relates to horror and like creature features because that's what I was expecting from it yeah but on the second watch I really appreciated a lot more of like what we were saying earlier about like the themes of like loneliness Mm -hmm. and feeling like isolated and left behind because I think that that really is the heart of the movie like it's it's a love story of like two extremely lonely beings yes like finding each other and like finding some sort of like like refuge in
1: each other this makes me think of the quote from bride of frankenstein that says like we need something more than a pretty little love story and then she tells the horror story normally okay so yes confession i am someone who loves rom-coms and like dramedies But also, I am usually very skeptical of, like, love stories, especially of, like, throw it all away for love. Like, I hate a love, a romantic drama. I can't. I can't with a Nicholas Sparks. I can't with a romantic drama. I think it's so boring. So, for this movie, like, where she's, like, it's kind of, like, a little bit, like, like, yes, they're saving the fish man because it's a way to, like, save their own humanity because abuse and torture is happening but it also is like you know if she wasn't like in love with the fishman, i don't know that they would still save the fishman and risk everything so it is still kind of like a risk it all for love story and i understood that in a way that like you know what i mean like i found that appealing in a way i normally don't because it wasn't phrased as it wasn't framed as like um you know they have this connection no one's ever had before it was just more like these people or these beings are just, like, they're so lonely. And when you find, like, when you find this, like, feeling or, or way to, like, when you find someone that you are capable of being emotionally with. When you intimate, find someone who, like, with,
0: looks at you like you yeah.
1: matter. Yeah. When you, fi- yeah. yeah, that's such a good, when you find someone who looks at you like you matter, like, you like, it's, like
0: it beyond like the romance it's just like yeah. someone who like seeing you
1: exactly and like this was one of and like you, i understood why giles was like you know what i will never find someone who sees me and you found someone who sees you so we have to protect that and normally again in love stories and specifically dramas i'm like ugh i hate this but this time i was like oh i like feel things about this like i this I this makes sense to me <laughs> it wasn't I think as cheesy that I, I, <laughs>
0: I agree with what you're saying and I think that it works so much because like like I was saying before like the movie works as a subversion and like a a creature feature in its own way mm-hmm. but it also like I he really respected the romance story side yes. of it. Um which you wouldn't necessarily like he didn't have to. You know what I mean? Like he didn't, yeah, have, he to didn't tell have to a really good love story or like it would a really still be nuanced a good movie. love story. But like the way that he sets it up, too, I just like I really appreciated how she wasn't like miserable at the beginning of the movie. No, it she wasn't just like was a romance. Yeah, it was, You know how they do that in in a lot of romantic movies where it's like, <laughs> I hate my life and like I have my job, and then you meet like the you have the meet cute with the yeah the hot guy and the then the sexy, sexy man who gives your life for the meaning. better.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. It the it didn't frame it like that at all. She was just like living her own like. Satisfied existence. She right. wasn't like I'm she wasn't a waste of a human. Like, she wasn't
1: particularly incredibly sad. She wasn't particularly incredibly happy. She just, you know, she was living.
0: She was living, and she, you know, like she on some level was satisfied. She didn't have. Yeah. But she, it wasn't. I like, and I think that it's a really important aspect of the movie because, like, I think some people critiqued the movie as like. She needed someone to complete her because she had a disability. But I don't think oh, that I that's a Oh, I didn't get that fair, Yeah, I don't think that's a very fair criticism of the film. Because the movie goes out of its way to being like... No, she's like a smart, capable person... Yeah. ...who was living a happy existence before she fell in love. And it, she wasn't like broken at the beginning of the movie. He didn't fix her in any way. She just was able to like connect on a very deep level... With this swamp creature. (laughs) With the
1: fish man, obviously. And like that
0: and that meant something. You know? Like it didn't fix her. It didn't like she didn't need to be fixed and then she wasn't fixed at the end. It was just like she cared about someone, you know?
1: And I think it's the rare love story that's not a comedy that I feel like I can like get behind. Because I normally, again, when it comes to like any kind of dramatic love story. I'm just normally, like, so not here for it. But I'm here for this one. I'm here for the fish I man. also,
0: like... I, 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 I also don't know if it's a fair critique to say that, like, he is fixing a, a, a void in her. Um, because I think it's also a very intentional choice that the swamp creature does not speak also. Yes. So it's, like... He he also, like, how can he, he's not going to fix her because he also doesn't communicate that way. Like it's Right, just like, they just have a different to, form
1: of communication.
0: They have a completely different, like, way of communicating with each other. Yeah. And it's really cool That's to watch. Fine. Also, like, yeah. a very, I think it's a really smart choice to do. Like, I, I I can understand the criticisms of people being like, they should have cast somebody who, like, doesn't speak. Yes. I could see that, yeah. Um, but I think it was a smart choice to have both of those characters not be able to talk. Yeah. And then you have the whole like it's kind of like a reference to like silent movies. I know. I was just thinking like, about that, showing like a, <laughs> a classic romance and telling it completely with like body language. Mm-hmm. Ugh. It's it's the movie is so referential to like old Hollywood while still being critical of old Hollywood and I think that's such a hard line to walk. It's and such like a hard line to Ninety nine percent of the time they really pull it off in that movie. Yeah,
1: give yeah, the movie an A plus. <laughs> he's
0: so yeah. It's it's a great movie. um Bride of Frankenstein. I don't know if I can say the same thing. <laughs> we will say it must I be don't interpreted even, like, within
1: its time. <laughs>
0: I, yeah, exactly. I think that Bride of Frankenstein is like really cool as if you're a like a film piece nerd. of history. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's cool as a piece of history. I think that it is not a very fun thing to watch, and that's coming from a person who loves horror movies.
1: I do. There are like okay, so we considered talking about I was a teenage werewolf exclamation point. I will say I much prefer something like that. Like that is something I would watch like yeah. for fun as opposed to Bride of Frankenstein I would never like with a group of friends if we wanted to watch like an old movie I would never suggest that you know what I mean like whereas there's some I mean, other I, creature features that I think are a fun time
0: Yeah I I love I love like not particularly like great creature features like b creature like, features
1: yeah bee i movies. Love that
0: shit i had such a great time rewatching nightmare on elm street 2 when we did that oh that was so fun that. yeah because it's just like there's so even if you're like this is not
1: is it a, a good, good movie? movie no but it is so a good time
0: entertained and you're just like i have no idea like the best part of those campy old horror movies is like Anything could happen. Like I have no idea what's going to happen. Freddie
1: can do anything, literally.
0: And in this movie, I was just like, God, please, anything could happen. Like any like you could do anything. Like just do And something. you choose to do this. Like you're choosing to do nothing. Like nothing is happening. We're an hour into the movie and nothing has happened.
1: Yeah, it was kind of boring. So, this is the end of Monster Movies Part 2. And I realized that last time I said that I would cite my sources at the end of the episode, and then I forgot to do that. So, I'm gonna do that here. A lot of the information for both of these episodes came from this book called Monster Theory, edited by Jeffrey Cohen. And this book was really helpful because it just lays out like the common themes of like monsters and what they usually represent and how they're often treated by the dominant culture, and a lot of like literary and film narratives. Another book that was super helpful was Monsters in the Closet, Homosexuality in the Horror Film by Harry Benshoff. So a lot of the interpretations of Bride of Frankenstein that we talked about in the previous episode were pulled from this book by Harry Benshoff. And this book also gives a lot of really great information about early monster movies and queer coding, especially as it relates to gay men in old Hollywood. A lot of the information on James Whale, the director of Bride of Frankenstein, was from James Curtis, who is a biographer, and he wrote a biography of James Whale called A New World of Gods and Monsters. So in terms of information about Shape of Water, if you're interested in Guillermo del Toro's perspective on monsters, there is so much information out there. Um, There is a 2011 New Yorker article called Show the Monster that was about del Toro's Like view of monsters. Um, There was this whole traveling museum exhibit a couple years ago called At Home with Monsters, which is about his views of uh, his views on monsters and also like his house, which has a bunch of like old Hollywood monster, (laughs) old Hollywood monster um, statues and stuff in it. It's really weird and cool. I don't know if the exhibit is still traveling around anywhere anymore, but there's a lot of like images and information and stuff about it on the LACMA website, um, the LA County Museum of Art website. Also, Shape of Water won the Best Picture and Best Director Oscars in 2018, and it's a more recent film. So there's a lot of like promotional interviews and videos and stuff of Del Toro and the cast, if you're interested in that. So I've thought about doing more episodes on old monster movies (laughs) because they're just so much fun. And that's definitely something I might revisit later. But the next couple of episodes are going to be on LGBTQ biopics. Biopics? Biopics? I never know how to say that word, but that's what we're talking about.